Broadcasting live from atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. West. You are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk Show. Show. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered would soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the gentlemen welcome to liberty roundtable live this is the broadcast for december the 26th in the year of our lord 2022 and wow what an incredible christmas weekend you say whoa sam why are you doing this broadcast about christmas after christmas because everybody else is talking about christmas before christmas and it seems to me that the 26th seems to be one of the saddest days of the year if you don't keep the story of our Christ alive. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Sam Bushman. I've got Dr. Scott Bradley with me. I want to highlight um, the Mary Did You Know was done by Peter Hollins. If you want to go look that up, he deserves all the credit. What a great, great rendition uh, of Mary Did You Know. Uh, and I've been watching The Chosen, highly recommended to all of you. Uh, the third season is now out. The first two seasons are incredible. But it just seems to get better. I don't even understand how. But every time I watch the next episode, it gets better. It is tremendous. It helps you relate to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and his mortal ministry. 
in a way that I've never seen in my 55-year lifetime. It is an amazing, amazing series. And I realize it's man's best attempt uh, to capture the Savior of the world, his life, uh, and his um, teachings, uh, and most importantly, help people gain a testimony of who the Savior Jesus Christ is. I don't want to say was, who he is, because he did indeed. I testify to you that he did indeed conquer death. And because of that, the whole world can smile. Christmas is the celebration of that. Now, I get that December was not his birthday. It was more likely in April. But I celebrate Christmas anytime I get the chance, any day possible. Right before the broadcast on the break, we were discussing that, and we were saying, hey, you know what? Christmas is not going to be on a, on a Sunday or the Sabbath <clears throat> for many years because of the, um, I don't know what it's called, leap year kind of a thing or whatever. And so it won't be on a Sabbath for a while. And it was a sad thing, but, you know, uh, our board op, Cameron said, you know what, we'll just celebrate it on the 26th or whatever it takes. Amen to that. We want to celebrate the Savior Jesus Christ, his incredible life. We want to acknowledge his sacrifice on the cross, but ultimately focus on his resurrection. Uh, And we want to focus on how the Lord's hand is always over his people, ladies and gentlemen. And in my view, the United States of America, the greatest country on the face of the earth, the light on a hill, uh, was brought about in preparation to prepare a people to receive their Savior when he returns once again. And I testify he will return once again. We have the good doctor with us, ladies and gentlemen. Merry Christmas to you and your family, Dr. Scott Bradley. Welcome back to Liberty Roundtable Live, sir, and a Merry Christmas to all of you. Yes, and to all those that are listening and may hear this later on on a rebroadcast. But, yeah, Sam's kind of uh, an eclectic kind of guy, a multi-talented kind of guy. Talks about geopolitical things on the radio and all sorts of that, a high-tech kind of guy. And he's also very, very in tune with music. And I I think you have a pretty broad range of uh, interest in music and have studied it probably or participated in all your life. But um, I, I don't think I've ever heard that rendition of Mary Did You Know. Uh, it's, has it been around a long time? I have never found a better one. I found it several years ago. And I'm, I, listen, I, I collect uh, Christmas music. I have thousands of Christmas songs. I collect old-time radio. I have thousands of old-time radio episodes. I'm just kind of a weird person. But nevertheless, it's one of the most uniquely arranged uh, renditions of that I have ever heard. The nuances, if you listen to it over and over, the nuances of their voices just bring glory to the message. It is something to behold, ladies and gentlemen. I'll tell you that right now. And we want to talk about the untold story of America and America's first Christmas. Now, uh, the folks over at Defending Utah did an incredible video about this with Dr. Scott Bradley. And I want to point you to that so you can see it on the video because Dr. Bradley puts up maps and does other things that are visually uh, beneficial. I wish we could do that here, uh, but we can't. But it was delivered, uh, or it was posted, I should say, December the 11th, 2022. So just a couple of weeks ago, Scott Bradley, DefendingUtah.org. I want to give them the credit. I came up with this idea, believe it or not, I thought originally. And I said, hey, Scott, we need to have you talk about the original Christmases and the sacrifices. And, and Scott's like, yeah, you know, the, the Defending Utah guys beat you to it. And so we want to give them credit. We also want to highlight the video nature uh, because the presentation is more complete in video form. 
However, we do want to talk about the Christmas in early America. You could also call it a revolutionary Christmas, if you will. Uh, it was a, It's incredible. When you study the sacrifice, when you uh, really um, read from the diaries, when you really get a handle on what's going on back then, it just puts you in awe. Uh, not of those people. We only worship Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Let's be very clear. But in awe of their testimonies, their faith, their commitment, it is unparalleled in history as far as I can tell. Doctor? Well, I, you know, there's been a lot of hard times. But here we had a group of people that uh, total motivation was liberty, individual God-given rights. What we, we've had so often has been the Genghis Khans and the uh, Nebuchadnezzars and, you know, the Assyrians running around and the Romans running around and and Napoleon's running around, and it, it was for the glory of themselves. I mean, they were building an empire. They were building a, uh, a power base that they could be lord and master over. And uh, the motivation was completely different in the American Revolution. I've got a chapter in my book called All Revolutions Are Not Created Equal. And uh, we talk about that, uh, how, how unique the American Revolution really was uh, for its time and season and even today i mean rarely 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 now we get people today that are in political power that you know the lessers that rule us that try and you know build this god family country uh, concept mom and apple pie and the flag and all that kind of stuff but you know you look behind the scenes and there's a, a military industrial complex that's making trillions of dollars off of this there's a political wranglings that go on you know the middle east we're always being you know thrust into a uh, a religious war literally in the middle east over principles that first of all are unconstitutional and second of all we really have no skin in the game on and and they try to make them sound like there's this high and noble stuff going on but really and truly if you deconstruct or peel the onion or whatever you want to call it when you look at this american revolution it was it was a purely based revolution, and, and God's hand was on it. I'm absolutely convinced, and the founding fathers were too, that um, that God endorsed what they were doing. And you know, I I know Hitler could say that, or FDR could say that. No, those were absolute. They they were simply trying to give credibility to anything that. Lincoln did it with the, with the Emancipation Proclamation. He wanted to give some kind of moral basis to the things that were going on during the so-called American Civil War. But in the American Revolutionary War, I mean, we can look at the way power was thrust upon George Washington. Um, he, I, I've got a letter he wrote to his wife. He called her Patsy, and there's private correspondence. And uh, how inadequate he felt, how humbled he felt how he hoped that he could measure up to the responsibility i mean there was none of this woo -woo, look at me man i'm gonna be on top of the stack i'm the commander-in-chief you know and we look at the lessers that are commanders and chiefs now in our nation and everywhere else in the world i mean tin horn dictators everywhere but um but george washington when he took that assignment he never went home for eight years eight years i mean I mean, I know it wasn't just across the street he would have had to go, but 
but still it was on the continent and uh, and and by the way his wife Martha came some of the winter camps to help alleviate some of the challenges and I guess that's maybe a little bit what we'll talk about since I, I spent some time on three winters that they spent in 76, 77, and 78. And then we also talked a little bit about some of the follow-on and some of the ways the Congress uh, treated the Christmas, um, I hate to call it a holiday, it's a holy day, uh, but uh, it's it's so different now than the Congress was getting home quickly after raping and pillaging this nation with their omnibus uh, spending bill with all of the horrid, unconstitutional stuff they stuffed into it, and and what the American founding fathers did at Christmas time, uh, well, after post-revolutionary war, how still focused they were on the Savior and, and His purposes. It was a whole different venue. The days of uh, of this nation, in a way, it was a you know you hate to say a Camelot because you think of Camelot. You know, if you you think of the movie, and eh, it was a real distraction in the movie, but because of the illicit affair that was going on, but but in a way, it was a, a kind of a, a peaceful kind of a recognition of a higher order, if you will, in the in a, the Camelot that people often talk about, and um, it was a hard time. It was really a hard time in the founding days of this nation. And yet, um, there was a not just a somberness. There was a uh, there was kind of a a glow, an aura about it. And in spite of all the hardship, that that there was a purity to it. And and so I kind of I like telling that story around Christmas time. I've been doing it for decades. And uh, this time, the Fending Utah had heard about it, and they wanted me to to make a presentation for them, and, and uh, I did that. Uh, we put a video together with slides and everything like that, with quotations from founders and with maps, as Sam said. Uh, the, the Delaware Crossing, for example, most people never had any idea. I have crossed the Delaware. I cannot count how many times I've crossed the Delaware. I've swam the Delaware. I've canoed the Delaware. And um, it's all been in very... Mm, calm circumstances in the car in the winter was always had heater on and uh, in the summertime when I was canoeing or swimming it was summer you know but boy what they did under very questionable circumstances the crossings that didn't happen uh, Washington had uh, two generals that he had assigned one to cross right at Trenton uh, just uh, from the west into Trenton basically and one just south of Trenton there were tactical reasons for that um, those two guys never made it across. I mean, the, the conditions were such that they didn't feel like it was even possible. Washington crossed nine miles above Delaware. Um, he had some artillery pieces with him that Henry Knox was with him. And, boy, getting them across the river was something else, these big <laughs> ungainly weapons uh, that, that they just couldn't afford to lose into the river. He crossed. He split his forces again. He didn't have any idea the guys downstream didn't make it across. And they made a nine-mile march from 4 o'clock in the morning until dawn. Uh, the, the guys that followed after them could follow the path by the bloody footprints. I mean, all of these things, you think, oh, no, this is just Hollywood. No, it's not. It's real. A lot of these guys didn't have pants for crying out loud. Uh, they were so poorly equipped. 
And what's really interesting, no, it's not the only thing that's interesting, but there's a lot of interest, is that they used muzzle loaders that they had to put, uh, the, uh, you hear about a flash in the pan and how that works. The muzzle loader's a, a flint and steel kind of device, if you will, and, and they had to, you primed it, you put your powder in and the ball in, and so that was in the barrel. There was a, a kind of a, a little hole at the, uh, was right next to the pan that was by the the flint that there was a, a powder charge in there that would uh, initiate something that had jumped through that little hole and, and uh, ignite the charge that was in the barrel. And uh, the sleety, snowy conditions were such that uh, you can't you can't burn black powder <laughs> when it's all wet. You know, you, a spark is subdued when they're wet and you're trying to uh, anybody that's tried to do a flint and steel fire in the middle of the winter in a blizzard, it, you got to have that experience. But at any rate, um, no, their muzzle loaders were basically useless. They were uh, long sticks with pointy ends called bayonets. And uh, so when Washington got told that uh, the muskets were were basically inoperable, he says, "We'll use the bayonet. We're taking Trenton." You know, so that's what they did until they could get into some of the buildings inside and dry their muskets out. They used the pointy end of the stick. I mean, it was very, very primitive. Uh, you talk about hand-to-hand -hand combat kind of stuff. Uh, you know, in, in modern wars, you stand off, you know, three or 400 meters, and you take pot shots at each other. Most of the time, people don't even know where the enemy is. They're just shooting down range somewhere, suppressive fire or some silly thing. And, yeah, it's pretty pretty messy when you do get hit but the fact of the matter is you could smell somebody's breath when you were running a bayonet through them see their eyes see the I mean the splash I mean it it, it was brutal 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 what uh, 17th 18th 19th century uh, combat was it, it was pretty incredibly intense and I, I know you don't want to take away from the intensity today but that's what they faced and the Americans totally surprised the Hessians, who were German mercenaries, if you will. People say, oh, yeah, they were a disciplined soldier. Well, yeah, they knew how to march and they knew how to shoot and all that kind of stuff. But they they made their fortunes by pillaging, plundering, and raping wherever they went uh, because that's how they supplemented their income. I mean, they weren't making a whole bunch of money to go out and kill people, so they had to pick up wasn't what wasn't tied down. So the Hessians were, were pretty much hated, and they had marched across New Jersey chasing Washington. I don't know, Sam, am I getting too far eclectic, and as I said about you, and, and uh, un, un disjointed because there's a, there's a sequence of things that You're happened. You're all right. So let's, let's, let's talk about the incredible plan. You mentioned it already how George Washington came up with a plan. He literally uh, had three different entry points, three or four, right? Well, uh, in well, which actually, they would all converge uh, to take Trenton, right? Right. Well, uh, you know, everybody was supposed to be there and uh, launch a pre-dawn attack, actually. But Washington, had he had the most difficult challenge. Well, my opinion, I mean, not only did they have to get across that, uh, you know, river that had ice chunks and everything floating in it and, the uh, waves and everything else like that. But the, he had to get his troops formed up on the other side. It took about an hour to form everybody up. I mean, you don't think about it. I mean, anybody that hasn't been in the military doesn't know that 
uh, TOT, time on target. Uh, that idea was kind of a, a general swag. <laughs> scientific, scientific wild guess. You think of the euphemism maybe on this kind of thing. Everybody was supposed to converge on Trenton at the right time. There's two generals downstream never even made it across, but Washington had to get all of his people across. And and think about this for a minute. you got people kind of standing on one side, stamping their feet, rubbing their toes that are bare if they are, and they, there was a lot of them, you know, trying to, you know, standing on one side of the river while they got uh, rowed across, and then they stood on the other side of the river while they formed up. You couldn't just you know, divide your troops up and have them all stragglers all along the road all the way down. Uh, you had to, you know, you had to get them formed up. You, and then what Washington did, there was two roads that bifurcated at that nine-mile point that came down the uh, the river towards Trenton. And I, I believe he split them, uh, which a lot of times you say, tactically, that's a bad idea to divide your forces so much. Because he'd really divided his four ways. Well, he came across with his group. I think it's a group. brilliant idea. And if he it, hadn't it done was. it, they would have never succeeded. Exactly. But the thing was, he's, uh, pe- some people say, oh, man, he's got, his, he's got the two guys below these divided. He's got up top. He's divided it on a, a, the road there. It wasn't a highway. It was a, you know, something you'd drive a wagon along. But um, uh, at, you, once you got him across you, and everybody formed up, it took about an hour to do that. And then they split them again and went down the two roads that were parallel roads. Again, no I-80 crossing, um, crossing the Delaware. Yeah, I-80, just so folks the east know that's a place uh, in, in Utah and in other places where there's this big you know, multi-lane freeway. He's just saying, hey, look, we're talking byways here, people. Indeed, and in fact, by the way, I-80 drives from basically California to New York. You can get on that road. When we lived in New Jersey, we didn't live far from I-80. Had to take a little trip to get onto I-80. But, but at any rate, yeah, across the cold country, it was not the one of those you know riding your comfortable sedan with uh, air conditioning or heating. You know, this was this was in snow and uh, miserable sleety conditions and like I say the firearm you were carrying was not going to operate you knew it I mean you knew it you tried to wrap it you know wrap the uh, flash uh, the pan and and uh, the the flint in in your in a rag or something like that you didn't have a stock a stocking to wrap it in (coughs) but a rag by the way uh, future U.S. President Monroe uh, was uh, wounded severely wounded in Trenton when they got there if he hadn't had a good surgeon there was Johnny on the spot right there. We wouldn't have had him for president, ultimately. These guys put blood, sweat, and tears in this thing. This was not something you watched uh, from, you know, a, a drone control uh, center in Nevada when you're, you know, dropping uh, drone hardware on people over in Afghanistan or over in Iraq or someplace. This was, this was up front and personal. So... I mean, people just really don't understand. If you haven't spent any time under arduous conditions outside and then had it be a life-and-death situation in terms of people were killing each other at the same time, I guess it's really hard to convey that. But, uh, you know, really, I mean, we could talk about, uh, you know, Thomas Paine's. These are the We'll get to that in mere seconds, ladies and gentlemen. Understood the sacrifice was beyond imagination. From a mere mortal... And this is an important point to make, ladies and gentlemen.
from a mere mortal point of view, they accomplished the literal impossible. Okay, no shoes, uh, freezing no cold, sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, virtually no clothes, no food, starvation, absolutely beyond heroics when it comes to uh, their wherewithal to look. They had to hike ten, nine, ten miles right after they even crossed the river. Literally, humanly, virtually impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the founding patriots knew it. Liberty Roundtable Live. Proclaiming liberty across the land. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News. I'm Lance Pry. The historic frigid winter storm that hit the eastern USA pretty hard should lighten up Monday. More than 11,000 flights were canceled over the long weekend. New York Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul gave an update on her state overnight. Where we have roads blocked. Roads are literally blocked by emergency vehicles, so that has made it extremely challenging for us. Freezing pipes bursting in Jackson, Mississippi is the reason officials announced an order for all residents to boil their water after the system experienced pressure drops on Christmas. The same precautions were ordered back in August when the old system failed then. The city reiterated that the boil order is for all surface water connections and did not pertain to well water connections. Russian missiles continue to kill Ukrainian civilians over the weekend. Russia launched a series of strikes on the city of Kherson, killing at least 10 people and injuring 55 others. President Zelensky shared photos of the damage, called Russia absolute evil. He said the areas hit were not military facilities. He described the shelling as killing for the sake of intimidation and pleasure. I'm Dave Collins. Almost everyone on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. got inflation wrong. The Federal Reserve expected 2021's inflation surge to be transitory. It was not. Core inflation climbed to a four-decade high this fall, nearly tripling the Fed's full-year forecast. Financial expert Dan Ricardo on Fox News says the omnibus spending package of nearly $2 trillion will ensure inflation to linger. On the surface, it looks like it doesn't really do much to help us with our number one priority at the moment, at least when it comes to the economy, which is higher egg prices, right, and everything else. So on the surface, it doesn't look like it adds a whole lot to our fight against inflation. In fact, might even make it a little bit worse. This is USA News. Like bones, your teeth lose density and become weaker over time, which can lead to tooth decay. And that can make your visit to the dentist feel like this. But if you want your dental visit to feel like this, try Crest Densify. Crest Densify actively rebuilds tooth density to extend the life of teeth by remineralizing enamel. Densify from Crest, the number one toothpaste brand in America. Smile, Crest has you covered. Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-215-5141. 800-215-5141. That's 800-215-5141.
Back with you live, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Bushman and Dr. Scott Bradley. We're together talking about the American Revolutionary Christmas. Christmas in early America, ladies and gentlemen. All revolutions, let's be very clear, are not created equal. This one was grounded in the look towards Jesus Christ, the author of their liberty. All right? Understand, i got to talk about General John Glover. Now, there was a British guy in World War II. It's not the guy we're talking about. We're talking about the revolutionary days, uh, the 1700s. There was a General John Glover, and he was the leader of what's called the Marblehead Regiment. This is one of my favorite stories because these guys don't get any credit ever. No one even knows about them or hears about them or anything. But in this tremendous crossing uh, of General George Washington to take Trenton, they were there. Uh, and General John Glover and his men were rugged men. You know, you watch modern-day reality TV shows, and you see the folks up in the Northeast that are on fishing boats, and it's rowdy. It is hardcore, ladies and gentlemen, because of the elements they have to face. These guys are fishermen. Isn't that a coincidence? The fishermen uh, were called as apostles for the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the earth, and now fishermen are called to serve in the Revolutionary War. But these uh, fishermen were just tougher than all get-out people. Speaking of the hardships and the sacrifices, these people were for real. Uh, and while they were crossing, these General John Glover uh, men were the ones in charge of the ships. You know, they were fishermen. They weren't really, like, trained forces like the Hessians or anything like that. Uh, and they basically, um, you know, they are like, George, we'll get you across this river, buddy. We'll just do it. And they literally would shove blocks of ice away from their boats with poles uh, they were doing it by moonlight and the dark and the freezing, the snow, the rain, the sleet, the everything. And not only did they uh, play an incredible role in getting the troops across for the assault on Trenton that created a great needed victory for the Continental Army, but they also were in previous battles over and over. Every time the British would get George pinned, supposedly, against the no-escape route, uh, then the, uh, you know, British and the whatever would go drink and carouse and dance with the women. And George would use the Marblehead Regiment to slip away. And oftentimes they even mocked George and said, man, he's a coward. He's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't fight. He just, you know, gets pinned up against a river and then runs and runs and runs. But George was wise enough as a general to see that, you know what? We may lose a few battles along the way, but at least our troops will be here to win the war. Uh, and this Marblehead Regiment has a role in history in such unique clutch situations that it cannot be overlooked. So General John Glover and his men, they were known as the Marblehead Regiment because they all came from that, you know, area in Massachusetts where, hey, they were, they were fishermen, man. They were around, and they got the job done. Uh, I believe that they were literally uh, accompanied by angels to accomplish their mission. And that's how serious I think this is, Dr. Bradley. But you look at what they did over and over and over. And without their pivotal role in the revolution, it never would have been successful. Never. So the sacrifice of these people were incredible. Well, while men and women were suffering, uh, trying to uh, keep the revolution alive, the British prison ships cannot be ignored. The, it's amazing how much ships and how much being on the water related to Liberty Doctor. Yeah, let's, uh, just before we leave, Glover, just for a second, I mean, uh, he protected the whole revolution. I mean, the revolution would have died on Long Island had he not been there in August of 1776 
See, uh, you know, the ink's hardly dry on the Declaration. And the British took uh, New York. They did. And George Washington was dug in on Long Island. Uh, some people call it the Battle of Brooklyn. A far cry different from the Brooklyn of today. But anyway. And everybody uh, thought George was done then, people. Yeah, they, they, had it, they were entrenched there and everything. And, man, it was not looking too good. The British were just kind of licking their chops and. And he extracted them. He took them across the East River to Manhattan. And then and when you say he, you're talking about General John Glover and his troops. Well, exactly. His team, exactly. his Marblehead Regiment. Go ahead, sir. So these guys, and I, do, I don't want to overlook the hell ships that were, uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But at any rate, because Glover did do that, and they, they were able to extract themselves all across uh, uh, New Jersey. And New Jersey is a small state, but to the people of Europe, it's kind of a lot of, if you think about it today, a lot of windshield time to get across America. And uh, and so the, the Brits uh, chased them with the Hessians, and he had to get across the Delaware. They started crossing the Delaware uh, the 2nd of December, if I recall correctly. I think it took five days to get his whole army across. Uh, that was when they were going west. They just did it over the night to get him back in on December, on Christmas. And now, hold on, and that them. contrast highlights why they thought it was impossible, Doctor. They, oh, yeah. they, they accomplished the impossible, ladies and gentlemen, with, with God. Let's yeah, never they, they, forget those miracles, people. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard, though. I mean, it wasn't like the, the angels oh, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and carried him across. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, but just just for the fun of it, um, well, uh, Glover had challenges. His wife was ill. She died in '78, I think. Anyway, um, but he was uh, the, he was uh, part of the successful Saratoga campaign. Uh, the Hudson River. He ended up uh, right there, stationed on the Hudson the rest of the war to keep the Brits from moving uh, up the river from New York City. So in a way, they kind of penned him in New York. The, the Brits held New York from the summer of 76 until November when they last left in uh, in 83, I mean, to, to go home. And so, I mean, but he didn't he, he didn't live very long. He he died in poor health. And, I mean, you know, he lived in poor health, I guess, after that. But nevertheless, he, um, he had a... a, a key part to play and it was waterborne if you will they were the you know the the navy seals kind of guys that did stuff in water but but at any rate let's go to the hell ships uh the brits uh put ships in in the, the harbor there off of new york where they they brought american prisoners of war it you know didn't have to string chain chain link fences or or barbed wire fences to keep them in there because the water was cold and it was a long swim and all that kind of stuff. If you ever get a chance and you miss it, go back and try again. If you ever get a chance and you're in Boston and you can go on the uh, USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, the, this uh, ship that Washington commissioned. It's, it's post-Revolutionary War, but, but you get idea of the tall ships. I could tell you stories about some of the things that I've experienced on, on the USS Constitution. But nevertheless, you get some idea if you... If you get on board of that ship and you tour the different decks, the whole ship is not just what's a you know above the water line. There are different decks, and um, they would put on these ships. And you'd think just from looking at them from a distance, 500 people on there—that's that's incredible. 
but but they did that kind of thing. They moved a lot a lot of troops on those kind of ships, and what they did um, with the hell ships they called them hell ships um, in the harbor there was they they put American prisoners of war in there, and they were stanch, they were filth, they were disease ridden, the rations were horrid and poor, and and they were not well heated, you know, bunks and all that kind of stuff, and and these guys, I mean. It, it, overall, probably throughout the war in these uh, uh, prisoner warships, I'll bet 8,000 men died. And um, so it really was kind of a death sentence to get put on one of those ships. And uh, that's where the Brits kept the Americans isolated, and they fed them, you know, biscuits occasionally and, uh, you know, had some bread maybe occasionally, or, but water to drink. But, but everything was stench and death. Smallpox took you know, hold there, and and uh, it basically you gave up hope if you got put on one of those ships, unless there was some kind of prisoner exchange that your name came up, uh, and the Brits wanted some some of their prisoners back, and so the Americans would trade uh, the British generally officers for for some of their guys that were on board the ship. So, yeah, really, really tough conditions, and. Um, you know these guys. I mean, I in the presentation that Sam's alluded to, I talked to out of a guy's diary that was there on board over the Christmas of seventeen seventy six, and how hopeless things were, and uh, how men were dying all night long every night, and the moans and cries of those that were dying. It it, it was it was pretty pretty hopeless and uh, and I just used that in the presentation to to kind of review what they were experiencing over Christmas time in 1776 there so uh, yeah tough conditions I don't know Sam I don't know what do you want to p- uh, focus on on that one because <laughs> well it, let's it talk be about dreary <laughs> the suffering was tremendous on land and the suffering was universal for all those who put their hand to the plow so to speak for uh, independence, all right? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people were committed, but not enough, okay? People were leaving the Continental Army. Uh, people were uh, concerned. People had thought that George was a fool, that George had lost. People lost a lot of faith along the way. There were many that remained true, like General John Glover and others. There were many who died in the hell ships, okay? The British prison ships nicknamed hell ships because they were virtually death traps, Okay. Uh, there was greater suffering, believe it or not, on the water than even on land uh, because of the crossings that they had to make to preserve the troops, because of the hell ships, because of the, the suffering on the water. And I don't think that should be overlooked either. Remember, the Savior Jesus Christ walked on the water. Uh, but this suffering you know, was tremendous, and people started to lose faith. And George commissioned a writing in addition to this General John Glover and others. There were several things that changed the tide, if you will. The win at Trenton, obviously one of them, but the commission that George gave changed the tide as well. Thomas Paine. You know, uh, Sam, just before we do that, leave. I mean, I'm, I just can't leave the Hellship jersey for just a second. And then let's talk about Thomas Paine's, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. But Abram Clark was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He had two sons, were army officers. They were captured. They were held on, again, we've, we've referred to them as hell ships. 
and this one was called the Jersey. Okay, the British offered to free his sons if he would renounce the Declaration of Independence, and uh, his wife and him were were willing. Uh, they they collaborated and discussed it to give all of their fortune. I mean, they were well to do. Uh, in order to get your sons loose. I mean, you know, you really stop and think about it. People that care about their family, it's, you know, blood is thicker than water, as they say, and they, they were willing to, you know, part with all of their worldly possessions in order to get the sons. And the British said, no, no, uh, we got enough of that stuff. Uh, we we just want you to, you know, we they wanted to see some cracks in the Declaration of Independence and see it start to crumble. and And he refused. Uh, that was the price of getting his sons out of that. You know, it, it was basically a, a death sentence. And and he and his wife refused to do that. By the way, there's an interesting side story on that. When when Congress heard about that, they ordered George Washington to throw a British officer in a hole and starve him to death. When the Brits heard about that, they began to treat the sons better. Uh Clark's sons did survive their captivity, and, and Washington didn't starve the British officer to death. But there was kind of a tit-for-tat that was going on a little bit about that. But um, <clears throat> let's let's go on to, to Thomas Paine. You brought Thomas Paine up. First of all, let me say everything Thomas Paine did was not lily white. So everybody that thinks that uh, if you bring up Thomas Paine, you've got the you know a great hero. He was a hero in so many ways. But he was a revolutionary more than anything, almost, an anarchist. And after the Revolutionary War, he went over to France and got in the middle of that mess over there, ended up some of the uh, factions put him in jail. He nearly lost his head, uh, you know, how they were doing that in, in France. And uh, Thomas Jefferson had to intervene to get him set free. But in 1776, uh, Washington— but Before you go to 1776, but the most important thing to understand is, you know what, we're all flawed. And the Lord yeah. can still use us for his godly purposes. Remember, he's the only one that has the omnipotent, omniscient view of it all. He's got the master plan. George Washington was given part of it. So were many other patriots, including Thomas Paine at this time. And he played a valiant, valuable role, nevertheless, doctor. Well, he did. Uh, and he kind of captured the vision of the day. He he wrote uh, a little piece that has become immortalized, basically. It was written the 23rd of December, 1776. So a couple of days before they set out on this thing to go take Trenton, uh, Washington's troops were demoralized. They were cold. There were supplies were running thin. And uh, as we talked about, their personal uh, <laughs> protection equipment was not that was not that good. But here's what he wrote that in that little December writing. He said, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. And, you know, they had, they had summer soldiers and sunshine patriots. I mean, there's no getting around that. And uh, the, the guy that was the... Uh, 
Well, he was considered kind of the father of the American Revolution, uh, Sam Adams. Uh, he, he wrote this about those. He says, if you love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom, go home from us in peace. We ask not your counsels or arms. Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains set lightly upon you, and may posterity forget that ye were our countrymen. Now, we have a lot of summer soldiers. You know, we don't even have summer soldiers and sunshine patriots. We have metrosexual woke crowds out there now that uh, are wimps and weirdos. Uh, the, the people of the Revolutionary Period were made of a different metal. They, they really were. I mean, uh, somehow they... They made it through. Well, I know a lot of them died. Uh, sure, they paid a price, and I don't know if there was a stroke tally they had to make to get it through. But, but at any rate, today, this idea, we seem to love the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom. I mean, when they were having everybody wear f face diapers, when they were locking us all down, I mean, you know what? We capitulated. Oh, no. There was no due process about locking us up and violating habeas corpus and violating our religious liberties. Churches went on in droves. They folded. And and these guys, well, this I, did, I brought up churches. I shouldn't have done that. I, I, my mind runs off on tangents. But, you know, the black regiments that were out in the Revolutionary War were, were the guys that, you know, they wore the black robes to, to, as preachers to, to preach from the pulpit on Sundays. And, uh, you know, they were the pastors, if you will, of the people. You know, a pastor is really a shepherd. And shepherds, you know, if you read, <laughs> if you read in the 34th chapter of e Ezekiel, you read about shepherds that don't feed the flock, that don't care for their flocks. These guys, the Black Road re Regiment, they were with their, they were with their flocks. They were on the battlefield with them. And, uh, you know, those guys, they had backbone. They really did. And and so many of the pastors of today, the shepherds, if you will, the would-be shepherds, because they're not really shepherds. They're the hireling that stands at the head of whatever congregation or church or whatever they're at. Uh, they lead a bunch of wimps and weirdos. Sometimes the sheep need a strong leader. And uh, it's sad today that we have a lot of people that love the tranquility of servitude instead of this animating contest of freedom. You know, these guys were eloquent. They said things that were timeless. They they truly carried a message in their words. I mean, their, their words had the Spirit of the Lord in them, basically, I think. Somehow they were carried by the power of the Spirit to the hearts of the people. And whether it was Thomas Paine or Sam Adams or any of these other great messages that were carried, uh, it it carried the day, and, and somehow this little backwater country that it wasn't even a country, really. It was a bunch of disjointed colonists that, you know, that had their own infighting challenges and everything. They couldn't put an, enough money together to pay their troops most of the time. They certainly couldn't supply them. And by the way, this is a little side note. Uh, in, in that presentation, I talked about the winter of 76 and winter of 77 and winter of 78. Very often when they were in their winter encampments, there were not far away from their encampment uh, prosperous people that, you know, they met for, you know, Christmas dinners and all that kind of stuff. 
while the troops were hardly uh, just a second. Let me see if I can find a. Uh, yeah, and there was literally without there. without George pushing for it, there was literally no aid rendered. No, they're, they're, it's right. I mean, they went hungry. They they truly did, and and Washington wrote about leaving Valley Forge um, after you know they had spent the winter there. They had three thousand men die. They were that died. I mean, they were not around. Not a bullet was fired. <coughs> they had no. It wasn't under combat. You know, uh, they were just, they died of starvation. They died of exposure, cold, you know. The thing never was, to forget is liberty has her price, doctor. Well, it is. And, and uh, sadly, and this sounds a little bit dramatic maybe to some people, but the price of liberty is blood. It's human blood. The thing that's really interesting is that that price has been paid. It was an arduous price. And uh, I, I just... Well, let me just, here's uh, the Valley Forge thing. This was just as they went into Valley Forge. There's something Washington said, then I'll read you something he said right after they left Valley Forge in the spring. In November of 1777, he says, There are now in this army 4,000 men wanting blankets, nearly 2,000 of which have never had one, although some of them have been 12 months in the service. So uh, these guys have been hanging around. Uh, no sleeping bags, okay? <laughs> a shortage of everything, you know. It just was rough. George Washington, he pled with the local people. He pled with Congress, nothing. He, he very often, there's eyewitness accounts of him retiring into the, the thicket of the woods and, and praying, asking God, okay? And he really, here's what he says, due to the great author of all the care and good that have been extended to relieving us in the difficulties of distress, that was their only, that was their only break. Now, here's what he wrote as they left uh, Valley Forge. No history now extant can furnish an instance of an army suffering such uncommon hardships as ours has done. To see men without sufficient clothes to cover their naked, nakedness, without blankets to lie on, without shoes for the want of which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet and almost as often without provisions as with them, marching through frost and snow and at Christmas taking up their winter quarters within a day's march of the enemy, without a house or hut to cover them, with hard duty to perform and little or no strength to perform it with and submitting to it without a murmur, is a proof of patience and obedience which, in my opinion, can scarce be paralleled. Now, I mean, th 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 that's the guy that was with them. He didn't go sit in a comfortable little you know dodge you know and uh, he was he was there among his people the next winter by the way was was at morristown new jersey and uh it's this is what general nathaniel green he's an interesting study too wish there were time to talk about what a humble leader he was but i mean you know it's it's kind of hard to get it all in in one little But at any way, here's what Nathaniel Green wrote. He said, poor fellows, they exhibit a picture of truly distressing, more than half naked and two-thirds starved. A country overflowing with plenty are now suffering an army employed for the defense of everything that is dear and valuable to perish for want of food. I mean, like I say, some of the farms in the general area, they had plenty. 
and certainly di difficult times were contributed to by the fact that Congress didn't have the means financially to support, uh, you know, an army. When you had 10,000 men in one place and you had to feed them, you know what, three hots a day. You know, you need three meals. Nice to get it. But um, there was a shortage of everything in these places. But they stayed on. There's By the way, no that doubt their sacrifice was tremendous, ladies and gentlemen. And we're going to talk about that next hour in greater detail. We're going to talk about the refiner's fire. We're going to talk about the American patriots and what they sacrificed and some of these humble examples. Well, we need to talk about the black-robed regiment, ladies and gentlemen. That referred to not folks that were going into battle wearing black clothing or anything. We were talking about the leaders of the day in the pulpit, right? Clergymen who promoted American independence and supported the military struggle against Britain, they did so putting much, much at risk. And so even though there was not a lot of people in terms of numbers, look, 4,000 troops sounds like a lot, but it's not that many when you're fighting the greatest army the world has ever known to date, if you will. Uh, you know, and then you talk about these clergymen. Uh, you talk about people like Thomas Paine. You talk about uh, there were scant few. I mean, they did not get much support at all. But the John Glovers of the world, the George Washingtons of the world, the Nathaniel Greens of the world, and we must say something about him next hour, their humility, their desire to see liberty thrive, their understanding that without the Savior Jesus Christ, that liberty was simply not obtainable, was the key to the exercise in their day and ladies and gentlemen i submit to you that it's the key to the exercise in our day when we come back next hour we're going to play a song from a group called point of grace that's the name of the group point of grace labor of love is the song we need to make liberty our labor of love ladies and gentlemen as we prepare a people for the savior jesus christ to return. I testify he will. Will you be part of the preparations? I pray the answer is a resounding yes. Dr. Scott Bradley and Sam Bushman, hour one in the can, hour two coming up. You are listening to the one and only Liberty Roundtable Live, and we declare this nation shall endure. God save the Republic of the United States of America. the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. West. You are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk, radio Show. Talk Show. It was not a silent
the cobblestones were cold Little Mary full of grace With the tears upon her face Had no mother's hand to hold It was a labor of a cold sky above But for the girl on the ground in the dark Every beat of her beautiful heart Was a labor of love Noble Joseph by her side Lost hands and weary eyes. There were no midwives to be found in the streets of David's town in the middle of the night. So we held her. back with you live extending Christmas on your radio. We are live. This is December 26th in the year of our Lord 2022. Labor of Love, what an incredible song. Kind of understanding a little bit differently the sacrifice that it took for Mary and others to bring the Savior Jesus Christ into the world in similitude of the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ. The founding fathers similarly literally sacrifice so much that I don't think in our modern day it's even comprehensible, ladies and gentlemen. I think back on their suffering, on their uh, sacrifice, on their love, on their service. The untold story of America's first Christmas, a revolutionary Christmas. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is just hard to even understand the time or these are the times that try men's souls. It's hard to understand what they will really went through, ladies and gentlemen. The group was Point of Grace. The song was Labor of Love. 
Uh, we need to talk Dr. Scott Bradley, who's with me both hours today. He's author of the incredible series to preserve the nation available at freedomsrisingsun.com. But I want to talk about the refiner's fire. These people were fully committed uh, and they were literally American patriots who sacrificed everything for the sacred cause of liberty. Let's talk about a few of them and their sacrifices, doctor. For example, General George Washington rejects power over and over and over again. After all that, you would think if anybody deserves it, it would be him. And he said, no, not even no. Heck no, doctor. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, by the way, uh, George Washington could curse. I mean, when he got angry, he... Uh, he, uh, I mean, I don't think he ever took the Lord's name in vain. I don't know for sure, but I, I think that people that got chewed out by him really felt chewed out. I mean, he was a mortal man. He wasn't, you know, the uh, perfect uh, cherubic uh, beauty that you might see in other, uh, <laughs> in other people. But at any rate, uh, George Washington, yes, absolutely. I told you earlier, well, in the first hour, we talked about the... Uh, the fact that when he was uh, you know, tagged to become the commander-in-chief of the military, his feelings of inadequacy, he was self-deprecating. He really was. But uh, we talked in the first hour also about how um, the Brits took over New York uh, right after the declaration was signed. They held it until, well, the, of course, we had to leap ahead uh, to Yorktown in, in uh, 1781 and how they defeated the the Brits there. By the way, the Brits had a habit, too, of uh, when they got in a rough situation, their fleet showed up and took them off on the water again, and that's how they were able to get away. But the French fleet showed up just in time uh, to uh, kind of blockade Yorktown, and they couldn't, the British could not escape, and uh, so consequently they couldn't see any other angle except for a surrender to Washington. So uh, that was 1781. Took about two years for the king to decide. Yeah, they really did win, and we got to let them go, and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, at any rate, they signed um, the uh, uh, Treaty of Paris that that ended the war. Uh, that that was uh, signed in September of 1783. Uh, George Washington waited until the British troops had been withdrawn from New York at the end of November of 83. So, I um, mean, you know, the communication was, in, was not instantaneous. He then bade farewell to his officers on, Nove on December 4th, and then he rode to Annapolis, Maryland, to report to Congress and resign his commission, and that happened on December 23rd. Now, j just so you understand, uh, Sam was mentioning the kind of Washington's elegant exercise of, of uh, power. He was the only guy on the continent that had a viable army. I mean, he could have said, you know what, this feels pretty good. He could have been America's Caesar, you know. He could have said, you know, I kind of like this uh, title of nobility, if you will, that have been bestowed upon me. But no, he couldn't, he couldn't cast off these accoutrements of power. So he rode there to, to meet with Congress and, and resign his commission. And if you've got just a minute, it'll probably take me a little less than that, but uh, but there's some really interesting thoughts uh, where he resigned his commission. This is, this is what he said. 
before the Congress. He says, I consider it as an indispensable duty to close this last act of my official life by commending the interests of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God. By the way, he always took it back to that. It was always the source of everything, okay, going on with his statement. And those who have superintendence of them to his holy keeping. Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. I mean, you kind of have to laugh a little bit about that. He thought he was done. He was going home to his farm. You know, he was called on time after time after time to stand in the gap, if you will, for his country and, and his, his fellow Americans. And even if you read in his farewell address his just loving counsel that he gives to those that had stood with him in the cause of liberty. But, but there he was in December of 1783, resigning and taking leave of all the employments of public life. Well, he immediately left after his resignation to begin what could have been, maybe if it had ridden really hard, uh, an overnight journey back to Mount Vernon, but he probably spent the night of December 23rd at, the, at an inn somewhere along the way, and I don't know who claims Washington s slept here for that. But anyway, the next morning, December 24th, he rode rapidly, but he arrived home at Mount Vernon barely in time for Christmas dinner with Martha, Martha and the grandchildren. So uh, he loved Mount Vernon. And now, Sam, we've been to Mount Vernon together. and we. Uh, in fact, it was funny. Just last night I was telling uh, part of my family about that time when we were there and the deluge of rain that we spent as we, we went about the uh, – and we weren't ready for – you know, we didn't have raincoats or anything like it that. It gives you we a little pretty taste, soaked. right? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. and it was probably good, but to being at his tomb in the deluge and everything like that. But here's something he said, and, and I think this reflects on the man. Uh, he was not a, you know, thump on the chest, uh, look at me, look at me kind of guy. But he, he wrote this about Mount Vernon. He says, I can truly say that I'd rather be at Mount Vernon with a friend or two about me than to be attended at the seat of government by the offices of state and the representatives of every power in Europe. And, and then also when he was there, he, he wrote this, and this was uh, probably a year and a half later. He says, my first wish is to see this plague to mankind, war, banished from off the earth and the sons and daughters of this world employed in more pleasing and innocent amusements than in preparing implements and exercising them for the destruction of mankind. He wasn't a warmonger. He absolutely felt toward God. He felt towards his fellow man. Here's another statement he wrote uh, a couple of months after that one I just gave you. He says, my first wish is to see the whole world in peace and the inhabitants of it as one band of brothers striving who should contribute most to the happiness of mankind. And so I, th I think this idea of the Prince of Peace had a lot more preeminence in his life than the, uh, you know, the glories of war and everything like that that some people try and uh, cast upon it. But, but he was, as was said as a eulogy of him, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. And uh, truly, he 
he was considered the father of the country, and I don't think anybody's trying to displace God from that assignment in this country. But uh, he was the mortal that stood there in, in the gap, if you will. He was there every time the country needed him. I mean, whether it was, you know, going forth in the you know, first commissioned in 1775 or, or whether it was, uh, you know, at Valley Forge or Morristown or Delaware or any of the other battles that happened in Yorktown and so on, or whether it was before Congress or whether it was in the Continental, excuse me, the Constitution Convention, I, our first president, I mean, I don't know who can even hold a candle to him. Nobody's been worthy to stand in his shadow. Uh, he, he really set the stage for what that office was supposed to be, and sadly, we have uh, strayed so far from it today. We need new modern-day statesmen of similar caliber. We really, truly do as a nation. So, I don't know, Sam, where do you want to go from here? Do you want to talk about what the well, founders uh, did uh, in terms of uh, how they commemorated Christmas in Congress? Yeah, let's, you, talk, you... let's talk about Green first, uh, because okay. you mentioned him last hour, and I think it's worthy of uh, exploration. This guy was a humble guy, right? Well, indeed he was. I mean, uh, he was a great leader. I mean, his his dad raised a sober-minded boy, and uh, he he thought a lot about these things. He had developed a uh, a limp early in life uh, as a young lad, and I think personally, I think it happened because of the arduous work he he did. You know, working with a shovel. I mean, he wasn't driving a backhoe. He was doing the the old-fashioned way, and. I think it kind of wore his hip out, and that's my best assessment of that. But to be a leader in those days, people thought, oh, we don't want a flawed leader. You know, we don't want a guy with a limp for crying out loud. And so he's fine. I'll serve as a private. I just want to serve, you know, kind of thing. And, of course, his uh, natural intelligence and his devotion to liberty and everything, it didn't take long to get promoted through. But, you know, in the old days, very often, if you're in a militia, you chose your leaders. And uh, uh, and so you said, well, you know, this guy, he's got a limp for crying out loud. And he said, hey, great, I don't, I don't want to be in the way of anything, but, man, I want to serve. I mean, this is just the kind of guy he was. And he was made a major, major general not too long later, but the fact is that was his attitude. It wasn't this, you know, there was a lot of, um, we could talk about British or American generals, and certainly in today's world, uh, these egotistical maniacs that uh, that seem to want to stand up and wear all the ribbons and be saluted and everything like that, and I've associated with plenty of those in my day. But but the fact of the matter is, uh, here was a guy that wanted to be a a servant of the cause of liberty. Uh, you know, I uh, I think people ought to stand, uh, you know, study Nathaniel Green a little bit and see where he came. I mean, Henry Knox, another incredible guy. I mean, this guy was basically a book, a book dealer. He read books about uh, mathematics and then artillery, and he became Washington's chief artillery guy. I mean, you know, big mountain of a man. They took, I mean, the stories of him dragging. I mean, he, he'd put himself in the harness to drag the artillery uh, pieces around. These were big, dumb, heavy artillery pieces, and... To get them to the places they needed them, he'd harness himself in. These guys all paid the price. Nobody felt themselves above it, you know. And uh, I, I just say, whoa, where are the leaders today, you know? You think in Southeast Asia what happened whenever some things got hot out in the field a little bit. All the guys that had, 
you know, scrambled egg on their uh, <laughs> shoulder or on the uh, bill of their hat, man, they were they dusted them off really fast. I mean, oh, man, it was above them to die on the field, you know. And you say, oh, well, they had to get up high to see the field and, and run things from there. Well, maybe. But uh, I think sometimes the people felt kind of like when the going gets tough, they get going, you know. <laughs> far cry from today, far cry from today. These guys led from the front all the time, you know. So what a, what an incredible group of people we had in those days. Well, where do you want to go from here, There Sam? you have I mean, it, ladies like and gentlemen. I want to talk about sacrifice a little more, ladies and gentlemen, because understand a few things. These people were on fire. They were subjected to the refiner's fire. They sacrificed everything for the sacred cause of liberty. Uh, now, General George Washington rejected power over and over again. Many of these people were humble people. Many of these people were flawed people. But the sixth president of the United States... John Quincy Adams used a large patriotic gathering on July the 4th, 1837. Uh, and in that speech, he really made a tie that we cannot overlook, Doctor. Well, you know, John Quincy Adams, here's, here's a son of uh, John and Abigail. Uh, he was born and bred to statesmanship. I mean, this when he was a young lad, he accompanied his father oftentimes on his diplomatic uh, missions and so on, and and a great Christian. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, most of his life he signed. He was an abolitionist, by the way. Before that became very popular, he wanted to get rid of slavery, and and it was an almost. And by the way, so did task. most of the founding fathers, even though they oh, never get any credit for it. Unquestionably, in fact, uh, we could talk about Article One, Section Nine of the Constitution, and how they considered that one of the most glorious and beautiful pieces of the Constitution because it would allow them to get rid of slavery. 42nd Federalist Paper, a similar kind of thing that Madison wrote. So these guys, they really were dedicated to the cause of all men are created equal. And they were working towards it, and it had to be a set of dominoes fall to the point that they could do it. Wicked men got in the way and all that kind of stuff. That's another side trip, perhaps. But John Quincy became, you know, President of the United States, and he was a congressman and everything in his own right. But on July 4th, 1837, uh, this is part of the address he gave. So remember, this is July. They're, they're commemorating the birth of the nation. And he ties it inextricably to the birth of the Savior. You know, December 25th is when we all commemorate And rightly it, so, ladies and gentlemen. So here's what he said. And by the way, I'll just say he, he misspoke, I think, at the very last of this um, he, I believe, was, was referring to Isaiah when he said this. Isaiah was about 700 years before Christ. Uh, the one that he mentioned 600 years before Christ would have been Jeremiah. Now, we know Isaiah was the most quoted prophet of the Christ's mortal ministry. Certainly, that's got to give him some status. And possibly the most quoted prophet of all times is Isaiah. So, so I think he misspoke. He put he put Isaiah in a place 600 years later than, than he really was on the earth. But Jeremiah was a wonderful prophet in his own right, but I, I personally believe he misspoke a little bit. But don't let that detract from the, from the statement. And I don't need all the biblical scholars, you know, coming out and saying, oh, no, what an idiot this guy was. I mean, he was in a speech for crying out loud. 
So anyway, well, so he was he said, speaking from the heart, though. Let's make this very clear. Absolutely. And you can tell by what he says. Unquestionably, he says this. Why is it that next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day? That's July 4th, okay? Is it not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? That it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity and gave to the world the first irrevocable pledge of the fulfillment of the prophecies announced directly from heaven at the birth of the Savior and predicted by the greatest of the Hebrew prophets 600 years before. So, I mean, he's referring to the, you know, the angelic host, you know, glory to God on the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to all toward men. I mean, he's talking about the enunciation of everything at the birth that happened, okay? And, and we do know that Isaiah spoke uh, messianically. I mean, he wrote of the Savior's mortal mission as well as his return and Anyway, we don't need to go into the Isaiah's timeline particularly, but but in Isaiah 6 and 9, he wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, you know, all of these references in the minds of the American Founding Fathers were inextricably woven together. And... And when John Quincy Adams uh, made this speech on the 4th of July when he did, that was the general mentality of the nation, of the people, the, the common folk. I mean, these people truly, uh, they knew that overarching, undergirding every step of the way of our liberty had been based upon those biblical phrases, those God-given rights that are found therein, the the principles of morality, the concepts of of uh, how society is to treat each other, all those kind of things. Jefferson wrote often about the words of Jesus and how they best explained how the whole morality of things should run. I mean, all, all of these people, there was a, a kind of a oneness of thought and mind in so many ways. I mean, it, this revolution was not based upon the glory and power and and everything of a, a man or, or, or of a nation. It was upon God. And and they never walked away from that. We have, but, but they didn't. Just, just astounding to me. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the one and only Liberty Roundtable Live, Dr. Scott and Bradley in his collegiate series to preserve the nation. A little bit of historical context, incredible sacrifice, grateful for the Savior, and his incredible mission, his conquering of death with the resurrection, and then ultimately his return, and the nation prepared for that to occur. Protecting your liberties. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News, I'm Lance Pry. 
Four Tacoma, Washington power substations were vandalized on Christmas Day, knocking out power to roughly 14,000 residents. Pierce County Sheriff Sergeant Darren Moss, Jr. on Como, ABC4, Seattle. It happened in the middle of the night on Christmas Day, causing power outages. Nothing was stolen from either or any of those facilities, so there's a good possibility they are related. We are aware of other incidents that occurred in Oregon and southern Washington, as well as the incidents from North Carolina earlier. One of the worst blizzards in Buffalo, New York's history, has claimed the lives of at least 14 souls brought by dangerous winter weather to upstate New York. At least 13 souls died in Erie County, where some 12,000-plus customers, mostly in Buffalo, were still without power late Sunday. That was down from 26,404 earlier in the day. A scary event on Christmas took place at JFK Airport. Jeremy Scott reports. The FAA says over 130 people were evacuated from the aircraft at JFK International Airport in Queens on Christmas Eve after a laptop overheated and started smoking. A passenger says the captain put out the fire. Some passengers slid down the emergency chute to escape. Several were treated for minor injuries. China's military sent around 70 warplanes and seven ships in 24 hours around Taiwan on Sunday and Monday. That's according to the Taiwanese Defense Ministry. It was the Chinese military's biggest provocation into Taiwan's airspace since Nancy Pelosi visited the self-governing island earlier this year. Three Russian military personnel were killed by falling wreckage of a Ukrainian drone after it was shot down over an airbase southeast of Moscow. Russia's defense ministry told local media its soldiers are working around the clock to develop new anti-aircraft missile systems to defend itself against Ukrainian strikes. This is USA News. PatriotSoftware.com Accounting and payroll Keep your time and money Mike Kappel here, serial entrepreneur with words from another happy payroll customer. Well, it's very easy to use from the login and the setup was extremely easy. I didn't have to call anyone for help. I was able to do it on my own. And I love the fact that I can run my payroll and print my pay stubs and then you guys do all of the filing for me. So I get a quarterly report that everything's been filed on my behalf, and then at the end of the year, I can print out my W-2s. So I use you guys. I tell everybody, it's the easiest thing I've ever done. Why anybody doesn't use y'all, I don't know. Visit us at PatriotSoftware.com. Use promo code RADIO and get two months of payroll free. That's PatriotSoftware.com. With PatriotSoftware.com, accounting and payroll, keep your time and money. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Bushman and Dr. Scott Bradley on your radio. We're talking about the sacred cause of liberty. We're talking about the founding fathers were absolute Christians. They understood the author of their liberty, Jesus Christ, very well. And they literally sacrificed so that all of us could worship Jesus Christ freely. Sadly, in modern day, it's being challenged by those uh, who want tyranny using COVID to allow lap dances to occur in bars, but yet you can't go to church and you can't uh, worship the Lord God Almighty. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a labor of love from we, the people, to preserve the nation. It's a call to action, ladies and gentlemen. We need to have statesmen 
American men and women in the caliber of our founding fathers. They must be raised up and stand for what matters most. Okay, it's our sacred honor, our duty, ladies and gentlemen. But you know what? The sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, understood this and spoke boldly, tying the birth of the nation to the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The nation known as the United States of America was intended by our founding fathers to prepare a people for the Savior to return. Uh, Dr. Bradley, even Congress understood a lot of this. Uh, we go back to, what, 1804 for that guidance? Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that for a few minutes here. I, uh, you know, when you look at what uh, our current leadership, so-called, are doing, uh, you look at the the absolute absurd travesty of betrayal, and that's the nicest thing I can say about it, that happened just before they took their Christmas break this year walked out the door, hung an albatross, a millstone, whatever you want, around this nation's neck, and uh, filled with pork. I absolutely unconstitutional to the nth degree stuff that was going on. I mean, uh, just, just think about it. They didn't put anything in for U.S. border security, but they put millions in for other nations' border security. I mean, uh, that alone, you should say, holy cow. What kind of leadership? Do they love this nation or not? I mean, it's it's just one of those things. You say every single page of that 4,155-page document, again, that was before it got its amendments in there, um, that kind of stuff, it just nauseates me to think. What kind of buffoons and baboons. Well, and criminal activity, really, because $1.7 trillion of money they don't have to fund unconstitutional uh, items literally at every turn in a bill that was over 4,000 pages that nobody could have ever even possibly read if their lives depended on it. Everybody who voted for it, in my opinion, is an absolute criminal. They are. Okay, so without giving them any more limelight, if you can call it that, I want to hearken back to December 25th, 1804, Christmas Day. Okay, so at the request of Congress, a guy by the name of John Hargrove was asked to deliver an address to the jointly assembled House and Senate of the United States. Okay, so again, compare and contrast. These guys didn't run home for Christmas. They were met together, House and Senate. I mean, you know, you don't usually get that, and except for on some cases that look to me more like pep rallies than a meeting of an august body that's uh, got statesmen and noble leaders in. But Hargrove was given a topic by these gentlemen that, uh, that sat in Congress at that time. Again, compare and contrast to the yo-yos that are running this country right now, the acrimony, the disdain for everything that we hold dear, that we cherish. These are Congresses that want to canonize same-sex marriage. They want to canonize abortion across the nation at a federal level. They want to canonize voting approaches to things. will assure the fact that we might lose elections based upon theft and deception. Okay, these are the guys of today. Compared to the guys on December 25th, 1804, they assigned John Hargrove the topic, a sermon on the second coming of Christ 
and on the last judgment. Whoa, now wait a minute. No, that, that, that can't be. I mean, the First Amendment wants an acrimonious adversarial relationship between God and government. And, you know, you get all of these wrangling baboons that are out there now. And you recognize how closely aligned this concept was of God and this nation. Right from the very, I mean, the Declaration of Independence, God's mentioned four times. I mean, it wasn't a godless pursuit at any time. And, and so here we have Congress. They're concerned. How do we prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ and, and what will face us at the last judgment? Right now, sadly, I fear, were that event to occur, there would be a firestorm come across this nation if the leadership were completely in the focus of things. Now, I, I think there's some, some hope because I really do believe there's a lot of really good people that right now they're, they're missing shepherds, if you will, uh, largely. There's rare occasions of such. But there are really good people across this nation, people that look to God and want to worship God and want to serve God. And and I can give you example after example, but I just go back in my own life. I left home when I was 16, and I traveled around this country before going in the service. And uh, I was in Florida to Alaska and from New York to California. I I saw America boots on the ground and, and met some magnificent faithful people that were just amazing and uh, it gives me hope that those people still exist but if you look at what's on the general blather of the talking heads on the news and uh, the things that are reported today we're a we're a morass it's a massive confusion based upon anything of principle but back in 1804 Congress wanted to know how to prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ and, and how to get us ready for the last judgment. And now the only readiness we're getting from the leadership is taking us to the to the wrong side. Let's put but it let's way. deliver history as it really was, though. You think that's an anomaly that they wanted a sermon uh, by oh, John, John Hargrove on the um, second coming of Christ. But you know what? This was common. Delivering sermons in the Capitol in Washington, ladies and gentlemen, began in Thomas Jefferson's administration, and it continued for decades until after the Civil War, Doctor. Well, that's no question. And and were there time, <laughs> and it would take quite a bit of time. There was a guy by the name of Timothy Dwight that gave a sermon, and he was a man of the cloth, if you will, about what it would take for America to survive the challenges of their day. Now, there were just because the Revolutionary War was over doesn't mean all the challenges went away. And so these things continued and continued and continued and continued to continue even today. So they didn't put a period at the end of a sentence and they went forward happily ever after. There were challenges. But Timothy Dwight, his sermon, boy, he's a man after my own heart in so many ways, 30 pages of fine print. <laughs> and so we don't have time to review it. But there's a central theme of that that he spoke about how America can survive, what it will take to face the challenges and overcome them that were facing America at their time. And do you know what that central theme was? I mean, there was a bunch of things. Don't get me wrong. In those 30 pages, he covered you gotta a lot repent, of You got to repent. You got to turn to Christ. 
Well, his central theme was honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And, of course, that's central to what you just said. Yeah, but, it's a but, piece of my point, right? Uh, absolutely. As are but all the, the Ten deal. Commandments, I might add. Well, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was the thing that he said was central to this nation because we would have our hearts turned to God. I mean, you look at uh, oh, Leviticus 25, for example. You know, that's a part of that is inscribed on the Liberty Bell. You know, the, the, and, and these ideas of jubilee years and Sabbaths of Sabbaths and all those kind of things. If you look at the uh, end of the of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, uh, you see that this is a, the most succinct thing that was said about why the captivity occurred with Babylon. That, you know, that 70-year hiatus that they took out of their country, it was because the country needed its Sabbaths. The, they had been ignoring the country, the Sabbaths in uh, the Middle East for so long in the Holy Land that the Sabbath, the, the land needed to catch up on the Sabbaths. And so the people got taken out of the land for 70 years. God's serious about this thing. You know, he rested on the seventh day. And, and that's what it said. Go read the at the very end of the Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. And, and basically it says, yeah, the, the land needed to be able to catch up on its Sabbaths. This is a serious thing. The nation was led into captivity for 70 years because they had failed to do the Sabbath thing. As I, uh, uh, I don't know, we just, we've turned it into a holiday instead of a holy day. And that's, and Timothy Dwight talked about that. Like I say, he spent 30 pages talking about a lot of things. Yeah, and we repeat that in our day, though, too, because we violate the Sabbath, because we violate the commandments of God, because we deny people their liberty, because we, uh, the Lord made us pay. He uses famine. He uses war. He uses all kinds of things to bring us in remembrance of our God. Uh, and he did so in the Rev the Civil War as well. Oh, no question. The Civil War was a comeuppance. But but just before we go there, and I'm, I can, boy, I'll tell you, we could take that off on a tangent. But but you mentioned, I think, in the first hour that you watched uh, the third episode of the third season of The Chosen. Last night, because uh, it came out last yeah. night, I saw the first two episodes of the third season in the theaters to support the whole effort. It is a tremendous series, highly recommended, ladies and gentlemen. I, I agree, and we saw the first two episodes in the theaters, and we've seen them a couple of times since <laughs> outside the theater. But last night uh, was the third episode of the third season. And in that season, in that episode, uh, the Savior goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, the sequence of events, in my opinion, we could discuss that and where it may be fit and where it didn't and so on. But nonetheless, the message was, was should have been well taken. And in that, uh, he Well, read, the Savior even says, I think I was very clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't. I, I said this pretty clearly. But he was handed a scroll to read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And uh, he read, it was open to Isaiah 61. He read a little segment of that, and then he sat down. And it went, in the Jewish tradition, those that are going to comment on what was read, they sit down. And then they make comments. And that's, that was true to form on the episode. And so, uh, basically, if you go read Isaiah 61, the portion he did, and this is found, by the way, also in Luke chapter 4. 
and uh, and you read why he came. I mean, he came, and, and a big portion of that was liberating the captive. And and his this thing about liberty is is a central theme of everything the Savior does. And and so I found that very interesting. It was true to form in so many things. They took him out to stone him and everything, and he walked. He, he passed uh, among them and left. Now, the way they depicted it was the best way I think we could do it in mortality, perhaps, where he just walked out of the crowd. And, and I'm sure he walked out of the crowd in his own mortality, but there may have been more you know, covering of eyes and everything else like that, uh, you know, people being appalled and not able to move, whatever. But at least the concept was there. And I think we need to understand that he was not accepted among his own people. And, uh, I mean, these are the people that knew him as a kid running around town chasing the dog or whatever he, you know, had around. But um, a prophet in his own land, you know. So uh, I wonder... And I commented about this to my wife last night after I watched that. What would be our conversation today if a Savior came walking among us today, the Savior came walking among us today? Would we be so stilted in our embracing of our own traditions of our fathers that are misdirected and maybe over pride and centuries have become kind of steeped into our lives and and if he was there and, and he preached to us, would we be sensitive enough to feel the power of the Spirit in our hearts to be able to say, yeah, this is the guy. I mean, and I know I make it sound almost too light, and I don't mean to. But, but in a way, in a modern vernacular, how would we receive our Savior were he to walk among us? I suspect a lot of us would probably want to drive him out of the community also. Because his message is so different from the warmongering, worldly, riches, comforts, and, and holiday attitude that we have about so much. Instead of saying, whoa, he's right. We've got to get in line here with him, you know. And, and I think a little introspection would do us all good. I mean, myself included for sure, because I'm the least of all, but... But that's one thing that, uh, and I'm kind of leaping a little bit on this thing, but at, at the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his, uh, his apostles in the upper room, and, and he says, one of you guys is going gonna, is gonna to betray me. And I, I, so, as you read the scripture, they didn't all start saying, oh, but it's him. You know, I always suspected he was a yo-yo, whatever. No, it's Lord. Is it I? Lord, is it I? That introspective moment that we have to look in our own hearts, I think is something we need to do more often. And whether it's the way we commemorate Christmas or the way we appreciate our liberty or the blessings of truth or family or, I mean, all of these things that really are cherishable or should be cherishable to us, I think we need to do a little introspection on that and quit thinking of things as a, a big nacho cheese beer bust uh, as we watch some s stupid shenanigans on uh, on TV on on the Sabbath day, uh, whether it's a, I don't know, something about uh, uh, some kind of big football game or something. I don't even know what they call it, actually. Anyway, you get the point. <laughs>
It's it's really yes, weird. I do, and I finished my Christmas day by watching uh, the Chosen. It was incredible. Uh, I highly recommend it. I also love the Angels Studio or Angel Studios app. They have a pay it forward model app where if you like the show, you can pay it forward and help them produce uh, more and more and more content. Angel.com is where you can go get more on that. Uh, but I digress, except for to say that the founding fathers understood that they must, they must uh, acknowledge the Savior, look to him for solutions and guidance. They literally taught of him. They preached of him. They learned of him. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to do the same if we want to preserve the nation in our own lives. If we do, the results will be as they were in the beginning, Dr. Bradley. Um, America may become, once again, the freest, most prosperous, most respected, and happiest nation on earth. Okay, we need to get that done. We need to work on that. That is our responsibility. I want to tie everything that we've talked about today to us and our day and what we must do. You know, um, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote some magnificent Christian allegories, if you will. And uh, there's some magnificent wisdom in there. And, and, you know, when we talk, Sam, sometimes it's, oh, ain't it awful, oh, ain't it awful, all this kind of nonsense that's going on. And there's a little segment in, in an exchange between Frodo, the little hobbit guy that was the ring bearer to get it destroyed, so to destroy all the evil, and Gandalf, the wizard, if you will. And you say, oh, wizards and rings and everything like that. No, these were, these were things to help even for the smallest to the oldest of us understand some things. And we can apply them in our world and against evil and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Frodo and Gandalf had been talking and about all the oh-ain't it awful stuff. And, and we do this all the time on the radio. And, and, and Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf responded, he said, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Okay, so we live in a time where we got these yo-yos and baboons and buffoons running the country and everything else like we got to figure that one out for sure but here's the deal it's our time we are here now and and uh, you know we uh, pilgrim puritans they came across oceans to get some headspace to be able to worship the way they wanted they didn't do a great job in many ways but they wanted to worship their god according to the dictates of their conscience and uh, there were people that crossed the the deserts and prairies of this land to come to worship their God in a place that they they felt like they'd be safe to do it. In spite of in spite of all of the purported religious liberties in this nation, we have been a bigoted country for many things, for many reasons. We still are. And and there's no such thing as reverse racism. It's racism. No matter who it's applied against and no matter what color their skin is. Anyway, Today, and it's absolutely wrong and rejected by us at Liberty Roundtable Live. Let's absolutely. be very clear. But a line of demarcation has been drawn. Those of us that want liberty, we, we can't retreat. We can't find havens of safety where we can worship our God and cherish our individual liberties and enjoy a free government uh, that's constrained within its proper bounds. It's here. It's now that we got to make our stand. we got to make sure the 
the nation's freedom, its peace, and ensure the things that we cherish, the things of God, family, country, you know. Um, there's a, and when we do it, we can't go out of the bounds. We can't just jump to war and think that's going to be the answer. We've got to do it within the bounds the Lord has set and directed. Okay, it, it isn't going to do to just go off half-cocked and push for a war. We'll lose more liberties than we already have lost if we do that. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about this, doctor. Well, unquestionably. And and if anybody has a ha- more than a half a brain, and I know there's a lot of people that have had a lot of brain damage because of oxygen deprivation in the last couple of years, but the fact of the matter is, what do they always do? Oh, ain't it awful? They're going to have weapons of mass destruction. Or ain't it awful? In Afghanistan, the women can't go to college or whatever they do. Oh, ain't it awful? Somebody set off a fuel oil bomb in, in Syria. And we run off to war in the name of things that never, ever normally are issues that we can't. We've got to have just wars. We've got to have wars that follow the constitutional process. We haven't had one of those in my lifetime, ever. Not one. Not one moment of that. And and so you talk about how, well, Madison talked about how this idea of these threats and the military forces and so on, they're used to to basically capture us. And, and so it's not just war. It's our ease. It's all of these, uh, oh, yeah, we got to put out more we got to steal more money. Isaiah writes about this, you know, about how everybody oppresses his neighbor. How do I oppress my neighbor? Well, if I want a special tax put in so that my special project can be, I, it's a socialistic redistribution of wealth. And, and we have become a country wherein everybody oppresses everybody else. I try my darndest not to ever, ever be a burden to anybody. But you know what? It's pretty widespread. And like I say, Isaiah talked about it where everyone oppressed their neighbors. We have got to do an introspection as to what really is our motivation. And just because we have a great idea, we think everybody ought to provide for and pay for, like redistributing wealth for this or that or the other, it's it's an oppression. It's theft. The and the solution starts with the Ten Commandments, ladies and gentlemen, for And it's all the Tenth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment of the Tenth Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, everywhere we look, we can see we have abandoned the social structure that God ordained for us to be happy. And we've got to return to that. The lines are drawn, and it's t- it's up to us to start using our heads and somehow regain the, I don't know, the brain cells that were lost during the face diapers. I don't but know. I have but, hope but, and I have faith, Dr. Bradley, that we can look to the legacy of our founders, look to the sacrifice that they put in, and we can start to do the same in our day. The power of one is incredible. The ultimate one, the Savior, Jesus Christ. But we can follow his example individually. Remember, salvation is not a a group thing. It's an individual thing, just like liberty. And we can live our lives and do our best to repent and change and live our lives to realize the blessings that our Father in heaven uh, wants to bestow upon us if we're willing to receive them. How do we receive them? By doing what he asks us to do. Keep my commandments. If you love me, he says, okay, we can do these things individually and as families. Families are the fundamental unit of society. So even though it's a very dark period in America, and even though I fear it'll get a lot worse, 
I want to look forward with faith and hope in the Savior Jesus Christ. And we know that if we individually do what we're supposed to do, and as families we work on doing what we're supposed to do, there are rich blessings now into the future as we prepare people for the Savior Jesus Christ to return. And our founding fathers set the stage and delivered the understanding that that's what this nation was founded for. The founders understood this, and they looked with hope, they looked with sacrifice and commitment to that very goal. We must do the same and work our guts out and commit our sacrifices so that the Lord knows we're serious and that we are the people ready to receive him. We're not ready yet, doctor, but it's our <laughs> hope and our prayer that we can get ready. And there's no question that we have far to go, but you know, really all that the nation's cherished is truly at stake today. Uh, those that went before recognized what the stakes were, and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the fulfillment of that. They drew upon their faith in God, upon their courage, and they stepped forward in, in this cause of liberty. And, and so today, I think it's a time for renewal. Again, for us to pledge before God our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, and that we can renew modern America. God bless you, my fellow Americans, for listening, for spreading the word, and for doing all within your power using your talents, your gifts, your effort, and your sacrifice to preserve this nation. We want to be a light on a hill in preparation for the Savior's return. That's our goal on this program. It is about God, family, and country. It is about protecting life, liberty, and property. It is about the pursuit of happiness in the Savior's way. Thanks for being alongside for the ride. Freedomsrisingsun.com is Dr. Bradley's site. My sites are libertyroundtable.com and lovingliberty.net. God save the Republic of the United States of America.